If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. So welcome to the podcast tonight, Lara. Lara is a special guest, so a special bonus episode tonight, answering all of your tricky questions that you guys put to me on how to increase your chances of um, success with pregnancy and conception if you are going down the route of becoming a solo mum by choice. So welcome, Lara. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I am an accredited practicing dietitian and also I'm a certified fertility and prenatal dietitian on top. Um, I love qualified for this yeah. conversation then. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I absolutely love working with women in the fertility and pregnancy space. It's um, such a rewarding uh, and exciting time um, getting women closer to their dream of motherhood. So what what made you go into this field? Well, my well, I've been a dietitian for over 10 years, mm-hmm. but the fertility and sort of um, prenatal pregnancy space um, sparked my interest as I uh, myself reached 35 before I found um, unlike it, well, I, I found a partner. I'm in um, a relationship, but yeah, I, I reached the age of 35 before finding anybody. And I was in the process of freezing my eggs when I found him. So I was looking um, looking to increase the quality and, you know, sort of increase that chance of having um, a successfully dethawed egg <laughs> uh, if I needed to use it like later down the track um, in terms of, uh, you know, fertilisation or, or however I was going to use that egg. So I looked at um, how I could upskill myself and found that, yeah, there's actually like a full sort of accreditation in the area. And I did that a couple of years ago. Brilliant. Now you can impart all your wisdom on us. <laughs> I will try. <laughs> so I guess one of the first questions that people ask is if they are going down the route of either freezing their eggs or going through IVF or IUI and want to improve the egg quality, what's generally yeah. the best diet they should stick to? There's so many 
conflicting advice out there about Mediterranean versus paleo versus whatever else, what would be the kind of starting point? Yeah, definitely Mediterranean is the most researched style of eating that is um, positively associated with increased fertility for both males and females and then also with improving your chance of having um, a successful pregnancy and like reducing your risk of complications during pregnancy so such as like gestational diabetes so the mediterranean style diet is largely focused on lots of fish and we would usually say oily fish which are like low in that mercury toxin that I think some people are a bit worried about during pregnancy. Um, So oily fish is, you know, salmon's kind of the top one that I talk about. Um, And then lots of fruit and vegetables, more chicken um, versus red meat, uh, which is a bit different to sort of the Australian diet because, you know, in Australia we eat a lot of red meat, I feel. And um, then whole grains, so things like quinoa, um, brown rice, you know, all the really healthy looking kind of grains uh, is what we recommend. So that's, yeah, the overarching sort of style of eating for improved fertility is definitely Mediterranean. And is there anything like top four things that people should avoid (laughs) when they're starting? Straight away. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, hmm. So, well, I'm going to say processed food. So really I would avoid McDonald's. I would avoid um, so trans fats. And in trans fats in Australia, we're really, really lucky on the food labels. You can usually uh, have a, a quick squeeze and look at the fat con- or not fat content, but it will say trans fats on it if it contains it, you know, legally Australia in our labeling system we have to state that so anything with trans fats you want to avoid so McDonald's is going to have that um KFC you know Aportos all the sort of fast food chains and then sneaky things like um the microwave bagged popcorn that's got like trans fats in it oh it's like yellow butter (laughs) yeah 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 totally um so top four things so yeah processed foods trans fats and uh, a high intake of sugar would be quite inflammatory and we want to be focusing on an anti-inflammatory style of eating and then yeah your fourth one would be some of those high mercury containing fish so that's your larger fish which is like shark uh, orange roughy, which is sort of like sea perch, um, marlin, and some tuna. So more the big tuna, um, yellowfin tuna is okay. So if you're going to uh, buy one of the big, little yeah. tins of tuna, yeah, tins, usually that's absolutely fine. Yep. Yep. And it's with with fish and sort of the high mercury containing fish, so those larger fish. Uh, that would be you'd only want to, you know, have maximum one serving of that a week, whereas oily fish like salmon, sardines, mackerel, herring, all the ones that you don't really eat that often, uh, you can have plenty, you know, you can have umpteenth of them every week because they've got so much. They've got iodine, they've got all those omega-3s, which are very, very anti-inflammatory, and actually the omega-3s are part of the, outside of the egg so the fluid 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's composed of omega-3s and obviously that's really important when you want to, you know, have your egg fertilised. So you want that to be full of omega-3s because it makes it um, easy for sort of uh, the sperm to get through and, you know, that wonderful fertilisation process that happens. So what if you're vegetarian? How do you get your omega-3s? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. What do you need? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, look, vegetarian generally, you know, you're eating, if you eat, if you're uh, lacto-over-vegetarian, so that would be eating dairy foods and egg products as well, um, that's great because if you're having vegetables and whole grains and um, those white sort of protein products like dairy and eggs, then I would recommend usually for clients um, an algae supplement if you're not interested or not keen on using an omega-3 supplement that would have um, sud, it would be made from like uh, anchovies or, you know, some of those really small fish that are high in omega-3s. So there's really good algae. It sounds funny, but um, algae supplements that are really high in omega-3s and they're uh, tested, you know, third party. So they're very clean, very pure, but they're very high quality omega-3s. So that's what I use for clients that are vegan, vegetarian that really not um, keen on eating fish so if you're lacto-ovo vegetarian and can you just get that from pretty standard health shops or where would you find the the algae um yeah so usually um online so one of my favorite places is iherb.com.au so you can get an algae you're looking for an algae dha supplement so dha is part of the omega-3s um, so there's EPA and DHA in omega-3 and it's the DHA which is really important uh, certainly during pregnancy and also in that sort of conception uh, fertilization phase as well and in saying that I was thinking so vegetarians if you eat if you eat seeds then there's plenty of plant sources of omega-3 so the plant sources don't convert um as readily to the epa and dha but you're still going to get a lot of benefits from these plant sources of omega-3s so that's chia seeds flax seeds hemp seeds hemp oil flaxseed oil um, all of those kinds of things uh, walnuts as well so just having them regularly in like smoothies or on your muesli that can help boost your um, what's called ALA, which is another variety of omega-3, but that's the plant version. So I think um, flex, flex oil, flaxseed oil, yeah. you can get yeah. that quite regularly. If you're making an omega-3 supplement, would you just kind of take like one tablespoon a day or? Yes, um, a tablespoon of a flaxseed oil in smoothie or on, you know, on your yogurt or in your muesli. Uh, it doesn't have as much or like the conversion of ALA to DHA is not, is like 1%. So it's not very high. So I would still recommend anybody who is vegetarian, vegan and having the flaxseed oil to still consider uh, an algae supplement as well, mm-hmm. especially if you're uh, over, you know, in that 35, 37 over that bracket, you definitely want to be optimising your um, omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, that's really important in fertility. And our traditional Western diet does have more omega-6 than omega-3. 
So then you're kind of boosting that omega-3s with the flax and the um, algae supplements. And that's all making the outside of your eggs nice and ready for spermies. Yeah, yeah. And generally it decreases the inflammation, um, any inflammation that you might have from stress, from pollution, um, you know, from not getting enough sleep, all those kinds of things that are just normal everyday life. Uh, those omega-3s um, help reduce that inflammation, which is, again, creating that wonderful microenvironment in your, um, you know, in your uterus, ready for if you were to have uh, frozen embryo transfer or fresh embryo, you know, for, for any kind of transfer or implantation, that kind of environment. It sounds like maybe something that we could all just add into our diets after we've become yes. mums as well to just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, omega-3s are big. I talk I talk a lot on omega-3s with everybody. So that was a question that came up from uh, my followers. Yeah. Actually. Is there a particular food that's recommended to eat to help with embryo implantation? So there's a couple. Um, and what I might say as a starting point is really the three months before you're having um, your embryo transferred is super important. So three, so the process of folliculogenesis, which is a nice long word, but that's mm. how long you know it takes for your egg to mature, is about a hundred days. So roughly three months. So what you're eating, any supplements you might be taking during that process, um, that hundred days before. Uh, or, you know, when you're having your stim cycle and egg retrieval, that's really as important as when you are undergoing implantation and then that two-week wait. So taking, so that 100 days, you'd be wanting to look at a quality prenatal, having a Mediterranean-style diet, um, trying to get as much sleep as you can, you know, ideally seven hours. And um, another thing I talk to people about is, reducing what we call endocrine disrupting chemicals mm. don't know have you heard of those before i've heard of the word but i didn't do that much yeah, yeah. on my own so yeah so the the main thing i think is easy to swap or change is um your plastic tupperware you just want to check it says bpa free on the bottom right uh, a lot of tupperware these days is made from plastic that's bpa free if it's phthalate-free as well, that's even better. Those two plastics are, like, super cheap to use, uh, but they are known what we call endocrine disruptors, and they're just sort of easy to swap out because we do, you know, lots of people prepare their food, meal prep, freeze it, reheat it, and ideally you want to be reheating it in a container that's BPA-free so that those plastics don't leach into your food. Yeah, I think I'd heard from um, somewhere that you should never heat plastic regardless. Yes, yeah. ideally yeah. not. Um, some people don't follow that rule and so then I'm just like make sure all your t- Tupperware uh, for you, your family um, is, is BPA-free. Uh, and then so that's like the easiest way to reduce your endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And then so the quality prenatal, reduce your consumption of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, Mediterranean-style diet, and then implantation. So beetroot, believe it or not, beetroot. is quite, yeah, beetroot. So 
it's high in something called um, nitric oxide, which sounds really scary, but it's not. So what it does is it's a natural compound and it increases blood flow. So it um, opens up your blood vessels uh, a little bit. So basically there's more blood flow to, I guess, your uterus and all that reproductive area. So um, that's a, a an ideal sort of environment for if you're hoping to achieve for embryo implantation. And then you want to be having plenty of protein and vitamin C. So vitamin C Uh, can help with keeping your progesterone levels up. You may obviously be taking some progesterone as advised by your fertility specialist as well. But, you know, vitamin C from citrus fruits, from plenty of vegetables, um, and then folate, which you'll have in your prenatal, but from lots of green leafy vegetables. So spinach, bok choy, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, all the the greens that you can think of, that's really going to help the environment where that little embryo is going to be hopefully burrowing down and and creating the magic so most important question to go with embryo transfer then mcdonald's chips post transfer because everyone does it (laughs) everyone does it yeah look it's one like if it's one meal it's certainly it's it's just a blip in the ocean if you had Two weeks of McDonald's food, then it might not be ideal. <laughs> anyway, possibly helps. I do not get it, but I did it. So. <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm sure there are plenty of women that have um, gotten pregnant uh, and eating McDonald's several times during that two week wait. Look, the roller coaster of emotions, uh, I imagine, is pretty rough. I didn't get to that point myself, but yes, I can certainly imagine that. Um, and like I was saying, a lot of what you've done in that three months prior is more important in than the two-week wait, really. You can do those little bonus bits, um, but looking after yourself and being kind to yourself during those two weeks is more important than, um, yeah, really uh, making sure that absolutely everything you eat is perfect. So is there anything different that you should eat during the two the two-week wait afterwards that is going to make a difference or just continue what you were doing before? I think continue what you were doing before and, yeah, definitely if you weren't focusing on omega-3s in those three months prior, that's something to consider in the two-week wait and then to continue into pregnancy if you get a positive um, test. And certainly, yeah, beetroot's, beetroot's not a bad idea to, to add in just to get that extra blood flow look, if you don't love beetroots, then it's not the end of the world. I know they're quite like particular taste. Yeah. I think there's another one that goes with fertility treatment, which is pineapple as well, but maybe that's yeah, the bit more like the, the um, vitamin C as well, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I think that it's a bit of um. there's not actually any evidence um, about it, but bromelain certainly has sparked a lot of attention in terms of it's an enzyme found in pineapple um, that uh, somewhere along the lines has been uh, thought to improve your chances of implantation. Look, if, you know, it tastes really good, um, it's delicious, it's high in fibre, it's high in vitamin C, you could be 
oh, you know, it's a, a great fruit to incorporate if, if you enjoy it for sure. What are your thoughts on sugar and the effects on fertility and when you're trying to conceive? Okay, yeah, sugar, look, it's um, it's it's something that I and and sugar I think we can we can put it into two categories here so like if you're talking about a teaspoon of sugar in maybe your coffee or your decaf coffee that's absolutely fine Um, but if we're talking about you know quite a highly refined diet that's got lots of coca-cola or, or juice or something i would call that you know a high sugar intake yep. that's going to increase your sort of low like bodily inflammation levels like this sort of low underlying bodily inflammation which is not positively correlated with sort of um, successful pregnancy so sugar in that context in yeah soft drinks juices uh, lollies you know the excessive consumption of that's not going to be beneficial um, but yeah like a teaspoon of sugar in your coffee or a teaspoon of honey on your muesli you know that's absolutely fine that would be within a, a well-balanced diet um, yep. normal amounts yeah but try and cut back if you do have quite a high sugar diet yes yeah if you, you know if you do drink coca-cola like once a day or a couple of times a week um there's definitely evidence uh, to say reduce that consumption. What about if you're doing the the no sugar variety? Is that something you should avoid as well? Good question. So the evidence does say to try and reduce that also. There's more and more sort of evidence mounting um, the WHO, so the World Health Organization, has just released a new sort of guideline saying really try and reduce your consumption of these artificial sweeteners especially the ones like aspartamine and um oh there's so many of them but like reducing them so that they're not uh you know frequent as in like not five times a day you know you're not having like a sweetener in your coffee and then a sweetener on your cereal and things like that so and yeah if you're drinking diet coke twice a day I'd always try and say can you cut back to once a day and then once you've gone to once a day can we do it to a couple of times a week because it's certainly those artificial sweeteners upset the microbiome and when we're learning more and more that the microbiome is you know such an important part in uh, reducing the risk of chronic disease um, helping you manage your weight and um, things like reproductive conditions as well, like polycystic ovarian syndrome and um, endometriosis and things like that. So interesting. Yeah, the yeah artificial sweeteners are losing popularity. Maybe is what I'd like to think. Mm. Mm. So I guess if we're on the the train of Coke, how bad is coffee? <laughs> so if we're thinking caffeine, how bad is coffee? <laughs> yeah. Coffee is, so the evidence suggests that less than 200 milligrams a day of coffee from all sources, so that might be tea as well, green tea, um, hot chocolates as well, so less than 200 milligrams doesn't impact your fertility, doesn't impact your risk of miscarriage and is also safe to continue during your pregnancy. So what 
200 milligrams of caffeine would look like is one store-bought coffee with about two cups of tea, like black tea. Okay. Um, usually you're pushing the boundaries if you do two, um, you know, regular store-bought coffees. Uh, if you're doing sort of an espresso pod, you may get away with two. Usually I just still recommend people have one coffee and then either a couple of green teas or a couple of black teas. Coca-Cola, again, has um, some caffeine in it. So ideally I'd just be trying to cut that out altogether. And I've heard that Coke with... just needs to go really. Really, it, it really. it really does. It really needs to go. Um, there's lots of other alternatives and I think most people find that once the heart, you know, the, the first week's like the hardest when they cut something like that out if you are a regular consumer of it and then you kind of forget that you ever drank it. And what, what I'm hearing is from you is you need to cut it out before that 100 days before ideally. Yes. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Because everything you're, yeah, everything you're putting in your mouth is uh, within, you know, obvious, uh, like within not reason, but um, what am I trying to say? So everything you're putting in your mouth is going to help support the maturation of like a beautiful egg and also help improve, I guess, the genetic outcomes of your baby. So the DNA in that egg uh, is, yeah, you're the future generation. And what we know about diet is that diet can't change DNA sequencing. So it can't change it, but it can change the way the genes are expressed. Right. So basically it can kind of like switch on and off to some extent the genes. So you can positively influence the genetic outcome of your offspring massively, which is, I just, look, it blows my mind. It's crazy and it's wonderful. Mm, no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so with with caffeine, if you can reduce to under 200 milligrams a day, that's certainly ideal. Look, there are some people that prefer to swap to decaf because they feel more comfortable knowing that no caffeine is going into their body. Yeah. However, I actually do drink coffee and um, I think it would be a really hard ask to completely give it up. So one coffee a day is absolutely fine. Yeah. For some people it's the, the mental health impact that comes with if they had to sacrifice yeah, their coffee yeah. as well as everything else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you are vegetarian or vegan, besides the omega-3, what else could they add in if they're not having the the fish or the meat or the other protein sources? Yeah. Um, okay, so vegan and vegetarians want to be certainly looking at uh, their zinc intake. So you you want so zinc is a, a really important nutrient in the fertility spectrum. Um, so zinc comes primarily from a lot of protein meat products. However, it is in a lot of nuts and seeds. So you want to be having 30 grams of nuts or seeds every day and whole grain uh, breads. So like you, you definitely want to, so wholemeal sort of like 
almost there. Ideally, you want the whole grain bread because you want the outside of the grain, which contains all that nutrients. It's got lots of zinc. It's got lots of B vitamins. And then other whole grains such as quinoa, buckwheat, um, like bulgur, spelt, all those sort of more ancient grains, mm -hmm. uh, they have a lot of zinc in them as well. And if you're sort of concerned that maybe you're not getting enough in your diet, then as well as your prenatal, uh, you may want to consider an extra zinc supplement um, just to, to boost that intake if you do follow sort of vegetarian, veganism. Uh, additionally, iron is something that I look at with uh, people who choose um, to eat vegetarian or vegan. And iron's a tricky one to get, again, also from non-meat-containing foods. So you have two different types of iron. There's what we call heme iron, which is from the meat products. Also, eggs have some uh, iron in them. Uh, eggs are a bit of a, like, superfood. I love eggs. And um, as, you know, as someone who's trying to, if you're undergoing a fertility um, journey, you should be really including, whether you're vegetarian or vegan, you should be including eggs three to four times a week mm -hmm. and a portion of eggs is two. So that's like six to eight eggs a week. But they, yeah, they have a, a reasonable source of iron in them. Um, sorry, and I got, I digressed. But, yeah, your heme iron, which is quite readily absorbed by the body, is from those sort of animal products, which obviously uh, if you're vegan or vegetarian, that's not necessarily your cup of tea. Um, and then we've got non-heme iron. So some of these foods do, so the non-heme iron products are uh, vegetables. Then you've got like grain products. You've got dried fruit like prunes apricots they all contain iron but that iron's not as easily available to the body so basically you need to really help the body absorb it so you might consider taking like a vitamin c supplement when you're eating your greens or having some prunes or having some like chickpeas also uh, to really maximize that absorption of iron or additionally if you know your iron levels are low, you may consider an iron supplement. Um, your fertility specialist usually will have checked that or your GP if you've had some preconception bloods and um, there's sort of like an optimal range or a cutoff that they say, okay, look, you might need to look at either taking a supplement or increase your intake um, or chat to somebody about how, how you can increase your intake. So someone has asked, are dietary supplements essential in pregnancy or can all of those minerals be sourced from food? The, the nutrients definitely can be sourced 100% from a diet. However, you pretty much have no room for error and no room for those mental health days where it really feels like I just want to have some chocolate or I just want to have, um, you know, that little muffin here. You really would have to be every single morsel that goes into your mouth would have to have been planned out pretty much by a dietitian or a nutritionist to make sure you're getting everything. Mm -hmm. I would say if you're over 35, then a quality prenatal is um, absolutely non-negotiable. Um, and ideally I would like to see everybody taking a quality prenatal because really what we know is that the risk 
of um, like neural tube defects and any other kind of sort of uh, abnormalities with the the baby at that 20-week scan is like grossly reduced if you're taking a quality prenatal with all of those vitamins and minerals that help support development of the organs and development of those neural tubes. So it's something that I would caution somebody not to take a quality prenatal, yeah. And what are your thoughts on CoQ10 supplements for promoting fertility since we're on like a, yeah. a supplement bandwagon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, CoQ10's great actually. So CoQ10 is a fat-soluble antioxidant and we actually have CoQ10 um, in our cells and we can get it from our diet as well. Uh, it is largely in a lot of meat products again. However, CoQ10 uh, declines with age. So it's CoQ10 is present in what we call the mitochondria, which is like the energy powerhouse of the cell. So, it, yeah, it helps in providing us sort of our energy day to day. And as we get older, so in the aging process, the amount of CoQ10 present declines. And then that can impact also the quality of, I guess, what we'd call the aging egg. Um, so if you're, I would consider it for anybody who may be struggling with infertility, uh, I would consider putting them on a CoQ10. Certainly if you're over 35, I definitely use CoQ10. Um, and it's extremely safe. So it's, yeah, it's it's one of the ones I have in my toolkit so anybody that's on their journey to becoming a mum, I would suggest um, considering it in yeah one of your uh, little pills that you pop every day. What are the other little pills that should we should do? So there's a prenatal vitamin, <laughs> but CoQ10 if we're post-35, iron yep. and zinc if we're vegetarian. Iron and zinc if you're vegetarian. And, uh, yes, that omega-3 either from fish if you um, if you don't eat fish very often. Some people really don't like the smell of it. They don't like the taste of it, which is absolutely fine. Uh, so I would encourage you to consider a omega-3 from um, that's made from like anchovies uh, or if then you're vegetarian um, or vegan, one of those algae DHA supplements, um, which I've used very successfully and um yeah, women don't see all the ones that I've recommended it to. They don't get any reflux from it, you know, no repercussions or anything oh, yeah. like that. I remember that from Fish Oil when I used to take it years ago. Yeah, Fish Oil is you can get reflux, yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> is there any other um, supplements that people should be considering or do we think that's? Um, certainly. So zinc is is something that I I do definitely look at, um, it, and depending. So usually I recommend that people will get some preconception blood tests done. Mm. So you might look at your B twelve level, your vitamin D level, your folate. Um, you might get some serum folate checked, and depending on sort of those results, you may need to add a vitamin D level. That's something that. I am quite uh, passionate about telling the world that 50 is not 
normal. 50 is not optimal for vitamin D. 75 is what the endocrine society says is optimal. So 50 is kind of the like hallmark banner that your GP will be like, yep, you're over 50, you're fine. But for bone health, for fertility, for immune function, you really want to be closer to that 75 mark. In your prenatal, there's probably going to be some vitamin D. Um, Some of them will have more than others, so you may not need to add that extra vitamin D. Um, But, yeah, get your vitamin D checked. And depending on, um, this is always a bit of a sensitive topic, but women in larger bodies, you may need extra folate because there is, and certain conditions such as like ulcerative colitis, uh, Crohn's, um, any kind of um, malabsorption issues with your, your gut, you'll need extra folate to prevent that uh, risk of neural tube defects. Mm. So uh, five milligrams of folate so you usually uh, from the chemist you can get like a high dose folate so you're taking your prenatal and then some extra folate and um yeah women in, in in larger bodies are generally recommended by their fertility specialist also to really boost up folate intake with a supplement um, it, from an absorption perspective we just want to make sure you're absorbing lots of it Uh, So those neural tubes get laid down. And whilst I'm on the topic of neural tubes, choline is one of my favourite supplements, nutrients. So choline is kind of a newbie, uh, not in terms of it's not a newbie nutrient. Um, It's rapidly like found in eggs, chickpeas, any kind of legumes. Uh, But choline uh, in the fertility world uh, is starting to be talked about but it plays a really big role in the placental function mm-hmm. and also helping folate uh, form those neural tubes. And then also it's being linked to um, better IQ as well. So oh, who doesn't want that? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So eggs, again, if you are not eating eggs three to four times a week, I recommend starting to do If you're pregnant or on your fertility journey, get those eggs in if you like them. If you don't like them, have a look at your prenatal supplement and check to see whether it has choline included. Some of them do, some of them don't. If it doesn't, then you might want to consider a choline supplement if you don't eat eggs or you don't have like chickpeas or legumes such as red kidney beans, lentils, all those kinds of things regularly. I feel like I just need to go and start eating a lot of eggs even though I don't want to get pregnant. (laughs) Yeah, eggs. Yeah, eggs, they're cheap currently. I don't know if they'll always be cheap. I'm a bit worried. If anyone in New but Zealand is listening, we, we're sorry. <laughs> so, eggs are so expensive there at the moment. Are they? Oh, wow. Like $12 um, a dozen or something or more. In New Zealand? Mm. Or, right. Oh, my gosh, that's a dollar egg. That's very expensive. Um, yeah, no, eggs are, eggs are like a powerhouse. I'm so glad that whole saga with you can't eat eggs because they're bad for your cholesterol has gone because mm-hmm. that's complete rubbish, uh, complete rubbish. Yeah, eggs, are, eggs have got zinc as well. Um, they're, yeah, they're really good, really good food. And I guess talking about pregnancy and food safety is important. So with eggs, you want to, they don't have to be like hard boiled so that the yolk is like dry and powdery because that's 
you know, that's an not unhappy appealing egg. in the slightest. <laughs> yeah, not appealing. So the whole of the egg white has to be cooked, really mm-hmm. well cooked, um, to avoid and reduce listeria risk. The egg white, it can't, you don't want it to be like super runny, but it can be a little bit, uh, you can see it sort of being a little bit soft if it was, if you'd boiled it and you'd cracked it in the middle. It doesn't have to be that dry, powdery. You can sort of have that slightly um, darker yolk that's a little bit, not runny, but soft. Not oozing out. Say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So you could still scoop it out and it would be nice in your mouth, not like dry and, um, and uh, yeah, your mouth gets stuck together like peanut butter kind of. <laughs> so if we just go back to supplements um is there anything that people yep. should be looking for like are there some that you should only have a liquid form versus a pill form or anything like that that people should be aware of uh liquid versus pill form most prenatals are in pill form liquid forms would be more like you can get uh, folate drops you can get iodine drops you can yeah the prenatals are usually in the pill forms and you can get um so you know a really big brand is elevate however elevate may elevate i'm pretty sure doesn't contain choline and elevate may not have enough iodine for you so during pregnancy you actually need 220 micrograms of iodine a day and the the recommended minimum amount's 150, and that's what Elevate has. So if you don't eat fish regularly, you don't have dairy products regularly, you know, you you might not be getting enough iodine. So you just want to be considering what kinds of foods you eat and then what prenatal supplement you choose. There are some, you know, behind the counters in the chemists that you can ask for. You can always talk oh. to your pharmacist as well. Yeah, so Bioceuticals is usually behind the counter in the chemist. Um, then there's a couple of uh, other brands that I really like. Naturo Best is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got, you know, a cracking diet, then Elevate may be all you need. If you need extra folate, then you're going to need something on top. Um, and you know, some of these prenatals, they make you feel queasy. Uh, another thing, if you are someone who has high iron levels before pregnancy, so, um, hemochromatosis, uh, you probably want to avoid a prenatal with a high amount of iron. So in Australia, Elevate has a really high amount of iron. So you may want to avoid that and choose something else. So there's there are a couple of things to be aware of. Not so much like the liquid form. Yeah, it would taste, I imagine it would taste really terrible to have a <laughs> liquid prenatal. So it's more about spacing. If you're taking multiple supplements like CoQ10, uh, a prenatal, zinc, iron, vitamin D, all of those, then you just want to make sure that you're not taking them all at once because a lot of them compete together. They compete for absorption. So you want to spread them out. So things like the CoQ10 is best to take with food. So it's absorbed well. Um, with food similarly with a prenatal you're probably going to want to take that with food Um, if you're taking zinc you want to take that away from your iron supplement 
uh, because they compete together. And your vitamin D, you definitely want to be taking that with food as well because it's, or you want to be taking it with a meal that contains some fat. So like avocado, egg, olive oil, nuts, because vitamin D is what we call a fat-soluble vitamin. So it's best absorbed with fat-containing food. And your omega-3 is also in that category. Um, and your omega-3s, we want to store them in the fridge if possible right. to avoid um, them going like uh, them oxidizing or going rancid basically. So you want to preserve the their life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want to preserve their life so they like to be kept cool. So someone yeah. was told by a Chinese acupuncturist that they had to eat stacks of red meat. Is that true? Yeah. doesn't sound like it from what you've said so far. No. Interesting. I've not heard the meat-only diet for fertility. I can see that if, you know, high-quality protein is definitely advantageous. Uh, meat's got zinc in it. It's got iron in it. It's got lots of other things as well. But you'd be missing a lot of antioxidants from your fruits and vegetables and you'd be missing a lot of fibre from, you know, nuts and seeds and whole grains as well. So I'm not sure whether that Chinese medicine um, acupuncturist or doctor was sort of going down the angle of making sure you're having plenty of protein, but I certainly wouldn't be encouraging heaps of red meat. Usually I say about one, one maybe two servings of red meat per week. Um, Quite different to the average Australian diet then, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And extending that red meat topic, things like salami, bacon, prosciutto, all that kind of processed stuff, you really want to be avoiding and minimising that as much as possible. So that kind of goes in the red meat category, but it's like the red meat processed category. With and the other we really want bits on it. Yeah. It goes with that processed thing you said at the beginning. Avoid, avoid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, want to avoid that. It's That's been... Certainly linked with an increased risk of bowel cancer, but also um, like decreased fertility. Mm, interesting. Mm. Mm. So if you're over 40, is there anything different that you mm. should be doing to try and ensure success with egg quality and conception from what you've said? Yeah. If you're over 40, I would certainly be looking at a really good Mediterranean-style diet, aiming for a weight that's healthy for you um, and moving your body, you know, 30 minutes every day. So getting all the, you know, foundations really solid, really, really solid. And then I would certainly be um, taking CoQ10, uh, an omega-3 supplement, and you may want to also look at um, something like uh, an NAD supplement, which is another another CoQ10 esque supplement. So it helps the mitochondria of the cell. So it mm-hmm. helps that energy production. So basically, it helps the cellular functioning of maybe a um, uh, an older cell, I guess, an older egg, I beg your pardon, an older egg. So it helps the function um, 
and energy production of that. So the the end point of that would be that the the DNA then sequencing is less likely to make errors. So if we're helping the energy production or the powerhouse, the mitochondria, where you know DNA sequencing and, and the DNA line is happening, uh, you're supporting the cellular function. So you're trying to decrease those risks of DNA errors and making sure that um, yeah, you're having lots of antioxidants from diet. Um, and you may consider some other antioxidant supplements. You know, you might feel a bit like a pill factory at this yeah. point, but there's other antioxidant nutrients such as alpha lipoic acid, which uh, is just a very potent antioxidant. And when I say antioxidant, what what an antioxidant does is it's, um, it mops up um, any free radical damage that can occur from stress, pollution, just the general aging process, all those kinds of things. So it, it mops up all of that um, potential uh, oxidative stress that's occurred and, and improves it and sort of, yeah, gets everything functioning as best as possible. Brilliant. Is there anything mm. once you're actually successful that you should do differently um, diet-wise once you're pregnant, especially if you are yeah, an older mum? Yeah, yeah. so um, once you're pregnant, you would uh, definitely want to reduce some of those supplements. They're, they're used in the like that 100 days um, before you would, uh, you know, whilst you're undergoing stim cycle, before egg retrieval, uh, some of them you can continue in the two-week wait and then some of them you would stop. So uh, stop when you get a positive pregnancy test. So things like the CoQ10, um, the NAD, the alpha lipoic acid, the zinc, the iron, the prenatal, you'd probably continue all of those. Mm -hmm. uh, and depending on how your pregnancy goes, so whether you're uh, in terms of experiencing like hyperemesis or anything like that, then yeah, definitely trying to keep down those prenatals is really important if you're really struggling to eat well. Yeah. Um, and taking dry toast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dry toast, absolutely, absolutely. My heart goes out to women who suffer with hyperemesis. It's really, really tough really tough i mean pregnancy is very hard in itself but like the hyperemesis is is um awful uh and the omega-3 i forgot i apologize but yeah the omega-3 is something you want to take until about 35 to 37 weeks pregnant something okay. to discuss with your obstetrician so the emerging evidence and the newest sort of data uh demonstrates that Adequate DHA, so one of the omega-3s, helps reduce the risk of preterm birth, preeclampsia, um, and uh, just general, you know, that placental function as well. It, it works with the choline together. So that's something you want to continue through the pregnancy. And, yeah, different obstetricians will say, look, you can stay on it until, um, you know, until you deliver. Or some will say, no, I'd like you to stop it at 35 weeks or um, 37 weeks or, or uh, yeah, everyone's sort of a little bit individual. But it's always uh, something to discuss with them because omega-3 can slightly thin your blood. 
the risk is low, but it can slightly thin it. So it would just increase that risk of um, slightly extra bleeding. If you're doing a stim cycle and you're on omega-3s, they will usually tell you to stop the omega-3 the day before the egg collection procedure. Just because of the And then you can restart it again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And with a, quite a lot of us being that bit older when we do get pregnant and the increased yeah. risk of gestational diabetes, well, it does seem like there's a lot of us that get it. Is there anything that we could be doing to support or reduce the risk of getting that? Yeah. Yes. So gestational diabetes. So there's a couple of things that you can certainly do uh, early on. Uh, again, one of those things is, is making sure that your vitamin D level is optimal. So a lot of people have um, vitamin D deficiency with gestational diabetes. And I think that 50 number, again, is just mm-hmm. not enough. So making sure that you are aware of your vitamin D levels um, before you're undergoing sort of like an embryo transfer. Um, And sometimes I recommend clients will ask their specialist, you know, can I have a copy of my blood results? Or like, can you let me know what is my vitamin D? Uh, Because, you know, usually they'll say, oh, yeah, it's normal. And as I was saying, normal is not usually enough. Um, But yeah, so vitamin D, then there are some um, probiotics that the there's a couple of studies uh, that have looked at uh, women who've experienced uh, gestational diabetes and um, then taken this specific probiotic. Uh, and unfortunately, I'd have I'll have to give you the name in like the notes to right. the episode because yep. it's something that I can't. Um, actually verbalize it's a really long word (laughs) but it's uh been yeah it's demonstrated that uh, it can actually support the microbiome so there's basically new evidence uh, emerging that some of the risk of developing gestational diabetes might be because of uh, change in gut flora and microbiota during the pregnancy so there are women who took this specific probiotic um at 14 weeks began at about 14 to 16 weeks pregnant mm-hmm. and they some of these women did have gestational diabetes in their first pregnancy and yes yeah, some of these women didn't then develop gestational diabetes again so whether it's a change in the gut flora from the probiotic whether there are you know whether you're taking a, a probiotic regularly so maybe you're eating differently you know there could be like a few sort of factors at play there but Moving, certainly moving your body, um, if you can, 30 minutes every day helps with just keeping those muscles active and the insulin receptors, there's a lot of insulin receptors on your muscles Mm -hmm. and when you're pregnant, the placenta produces hormones that interfere with the way that insulin works. So sometimes it's really out of your control unfortunately uh which is it really sucks um and you know it's not your fault uh but there's yeah there are a few things so trying to maintain some kind of level of activity to keep those insulin receptors sort of happy and healthy um and the same with if you know going into pregnancy if you can be that weight that's you know healthy and happy for you that also sort of reduces the risk as well 
if you've got a history of things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, unfortunately that puts you in a higher risk category and yeah, being over um, being over sort of 35, 37 does put you in a higher risk category uh, and also ethnicity. So we know that women from um, Asian backgrounds, sort of Indian backgrounds, they also have a bit of a higher risk of developing gestational diabetes. And if you've got any family members, like close family members, such as your paternal, like your parents um, or grandparents, uh, that can increase your risk as well. Yeah, thanks to being, what was I, 39, dad had type 2, his mother had, or one of his well, sisters, everybody had it, my grand, maternal grandmother had it. It's destined to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's um it's such a, a challenge and it's, you know, pregnancy, as I've said a few times, this podcast is like it's already really hard and then you add like this huge layer um, because, with gestational diabetes, I feel like it's a crash course in, you get a crash course in like carb counting and how to, you know, manage this as well as you're probably, you know, still working a full-time job. You may already have another child. If you're a single mum, you know, you're managing everything. Um, it's just like a lot. I see, I see a lot of women who are very overwhelmed and sometimes they feel like it's their fault. Uh, and there's so much stigma around it, which I really, I really hate that. So yeah, it's not, it's definitely not your fault. There's a lot of factors at play that are uncontrollable. And I know this was meant to be about conception um, pregnancy, <laughs> but do you have any great advice for anyone who has successfully just had a child about breastfeeding and what will help with supply? With supply. Yeah. Great question. Breastfeeding um, is a wonderful journey. Can be tricky for can be yeah tricky for a lot of people. I believe that sufficient nutrition. So you're you're like churning through the calories when you're breastfeeding, and then coupled with sleep deprivation, you're probably usually very hungry. But adequate protein. So plenty. If you're not vegetarian, not vegan, plenty of um, fish. You don't need to worry so much about the mercury, but ideally oily fish. So plenty of fish, plenty of chicken, plenty of eggs, plenty of nuts. Um, again, I do recommend that women continue either their prenatal or swap onto like a breastfeeding supplement mm -hmm. because you are literally just giving away all of your nutrients to the baby. So it leaves the woman quite depleted and your iodine requirements go up even more when you're breastfeeding. So they're higher actually when you're breastfeeding them when they are when you're pregnant. Yeah. And so, again, a lot of women are not um, getting enough of that iodine. And that just that puts a lot of pressure then on your own thyroid. And we do see a lot of like postpartum thyroid issues uh, or even, you know, intrapartum so during pregnancy thyroid issues there's a lot of pressure on your thyroid so making sure you're having adequate thyroid um sorry adequate iodine uh when you're breastfeeding is super important and you know if you can if you can the best thing i say for breastfeeding women is like can your family or friends cook for you if friends say, what can I give you or what can I bring you? Say food, please. <laughs> um, all of the food. So, yeah, all of the food or like an Uber Eats 
um, voucher or something. So really nourishing yourself. So adequate supply, so adequate um, calories helps with adequate supply. Look, there are some women that um, may struggle with adequate with supply because of uh, just not having a huge amount of like breast tissue um, or the milk ducts. And if you if you have um, insulin resistance, sometimes that can make um, supply challenging. There's not um, look. They say that um, brewer's yeast is like something to take to help milk supply. Look, you can add it in cookies for sure, uh, or add it into baked goods if you feel like it. There's no like studies done on it. Um, it certainly doesn't harm you to to use it. I think the nutrients you need to be focusing on are adequate calcium to protect your bones because breastfeeding is very hard on a woman's bones uh, and essentially our body is so amazing that if you're not consuming enough calcium from your dairy products or your fortified almond milk or your fortified oat milk or your fortified soy milk, then our blood takes from our bones the calcium and then that goes into your breast milk and basically the person that um, not suffers but the person that takes the brunt of it is the mother mm. and you don't know this until later on when uh, you know your bones are a bit weaker and um, maybe you uh, have osteoporosis or something it's it's like a, a silent sort of thing that can happen uh, in the future so Calcium, iodine, plenty of protein, uh, my sort of three top things for breastfeeding. Wow. We have covered a lot tonight and I feel <laughs> so educated and somehow amazed that my child ended up as it did and uh, <laughs> I conceived it all. because. Oh. But I think the biggest things I've heard is the 100 days is key, so try and sort your diet yeah. out before that point because that's when it's going to matter. Yes. Reduce your caffeine, Absolutely. get rid of the sugar, Mediterranean diet, and yeah, all of the omegas. And you can some good um, yeah. advice for sources if you are a vegetarian or vegan for that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that hundred days prior is um, your your key window to really put yourself as a priority, um, and then housing that baby going forward. Uh, nutrition is, is such an important part of it. Oh, well, of course, I would think that I'm a dietitian, but yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lara, for for sharing all of that wisdom with me. I know it's going to make a huge difference to all of those mamas out there that are just starting out this journey and wanting to be as successful as soon as possible. No problems. It was absolutely wonderful to be talking to you, Alicia. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Alicia and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.